Lauren, why aren't you here? I really don't like to do this breast cancer show without you. Lauren, where did you go? I can't do this alone. And we gotta get on with the show. Thank you. Thank you. Lauren's not here, and it's only me, and you've been warned. Welcome to Breast Cancer is Boring, a podcast about breast cancer with Jocelyn and Lauren. Whether you have breast cancer or any other kind of cancer, or you're just a weirdo who's super <laughs> cancer curious, welcome. We hope you enjoy. Because breast cancer is boring, but we and you mm-hmm. are interesting. I love it. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Today's show is a musical, so I will be singing all the parts because Lauren's not here to sing it with me, and all of that is true except it's not a musical, which no one is sad about but me. Uh, But Lauren is gone. She's got a lot of stuff going on right now, and so she's taking some time off. And so it's me, ladies and gentlemen, and people of the internet. So, to keep it consistent, let's start this episode the way we always start our episodes, with announcements. Let's just get through it, because you know what's coming next. And that is that it's a pandemic out there, you guys. And just let me count the ways we've got monkeypox, newest entrance into this uh, communicable disease party that is the human race. Um, COVID, you know... Not as new, but, you know, kind of starting to be a part of the cast, you know? It's not like a special guest star anymore. It's like a regular. But the real star, the one that's been around forever, the OG, the Susan Lucci of viruses, the flu. It's still a thing. Uh, Good news is for all of these uh, diseases, there are vaccines, actually. Um, For the flu vaccine and for COVID, those Boosters are available. They, you can get them today. You can get both shots at the same visit. No need to uh, get them separate. I mean, it'll be, still be two shots, but you can get them at the same time. So that's, that's good. Uh, for monkeypox, you know, new kid on the block. <laughs> eligibility is a little bit different, and you can go to the CDC uh, to look at eligibility. Moving on to more fun things. Let's get into our podcast Apple reviews. We have a new review. Lauren would be so excited if she were here. Lauren, come back. Baby, come back. No, I promise this is not a musical. Um, New five-star review on our Apple podcast from Hugs117. Quote, rock stars with three exclamation points. The two of you are amazing. Love the content. And format. Thank you, Hugs. That is very sweet, and um, I think you are a good person. However, one thing we do we we do need to discuss, and that is 117 objectively too many hugs. I think, especially it's still a pandemic. You know, I want you to be safe. Uh, population health as a nurse is something that's very important to me. So I feel that. You do need to decrease the number of hugs you're giving out. Um, I don't know what kind of time frame we're dealing with, this 117, but it's hard for me to to think of a time frame where that would be appropriate, being a person who does not especially enjoy physical contact with other persons. 
um, again, I love how generous you are and you're just out there making people feel good with these hugs. But, um, I just, I would ask that you restrict the hugs to people, you know, very well, um, prolonged hugs only with intimate partners. And, uh, in any other cases, please do use protection, like a barrier device, um, for your hugs. It's very important. Uh, so stay safe out there, Hugs117. Um, continuing on, today's episode is all about scans. So many scans, you guys. The life of a cancer-diagnosed person. I'm talking MRIs. I'm talking mammograms, CTs, DEXA scans, PET scans, bone scans. Some with contrast, some without. I mean, with all the scans going around, how do you know which ones you need? Let's find out. Before we do, let's lay some groundwork for these things. We're going to be talking about guidelines. We're going to be talking about what tests, what screening tools you need based on your risk factor. And anytime a person on the internet is giving you what sounds like medical advice, it is very important to set some groundwork for that advice, regardless of who they are. I am a nurse. That does not make me a health expert. That certainly does not make me an expert on your health. So some ground rules that can be applied, I feel like, across the internet, social media, in your daily lives. Seek out reputable sources. What are reputable sources? Well, a good place to start. .govs.orgs.edus.who.int. Anyone in the entire world can have a .com website or a social media account or a podcast for that matter. Literally, I am sitting in my closet right now recording this on GarageBand. I pay $20 a month to have it shot out onto the interwebs where you can go. Anyone can go and listen to this. I could say anything I want. No one's coming for me. No one's going to stop me. No one's fact-checking this. So you need to do that. There are no standards or regulatory components to medical advice on any internet platforms. They try, but let, let's just face it. It, there's no substantive way to just trust these platforms to only deliver you good advice. That is something you have to do on your own. So be very suspicious of .coms. Gravitate toward the .govs, the .orgs, the .edus. Even those, you, you need to vet. And the vetting process, for me, is triangulate the data triangulate the data. Finding a guideline or a recommendation in one location, fine. You know, especially if it's like something like the CDC. We all know the CDC is pretty darn reputable. I mean, we use it. It's like our national centers for, you know, disease control. But, and, and maybe you've already vetted those things. Maybe you know some person on the internet who is a reputable source because you have previously vetted them. So like for me, Dr. Jen Gunter, she's an ob -GYN. When she says something about menopause or when she says something about 
um, vaginal hygiene or when she publishes a book, you know, called the Vagina Bible. Why did I say that word so weird? The Vagina Bible. I trust her because I've already vetted her. But it's always a good practice to triangulate your data, meaning when you get a piece of medical advice, when you see something, information, maybe vaccine information, can you find the same or similar information in two more reputable places? It's just basic research. Um, if you saw, so for example, if you saw on Twitter that a celebrity couple broke up, maybe you just take that as fact. I do not. <laughs> I'm going to go head over to Insta and see if they're still following each other. And then I'm going to check out E! News or TMZ and see if they've walked the red carpet separately. Were they seen walking out of a restaurant? Like We do more fact-checking about the relationships between people on TV and in the news or celebrities that we don't even know than we do about our own bodies and health. So let's apply that same level of trying to figure out who is the final winner of The Bachelor or Bachelorette to finding out good sources of information about health guidelines. Triangulate your data. Three pieces, three points of reputable information, all saying essentially the same thing. Um, Finally, and probably most importantly, discuss this information with your healthcare provider. If you're seeing in three reputable places that a yearly MRI uh, is recommended for you based on your diagnosis and your history, bring that to your healthcare professional. I mean, they're going to have to order it anyway, but they probably already know. But bring that to them, discuss it with them. They're your doctor for a reason, or they're your nurse practitioner for a reason, or they're your um, physician's assistant for a reason. Another important aspect is to understand that guidelines change as new data is made available. And this can be frustrating for people. This was very recently very frustrating for guidelines in um, what age a person of just average risk should start having mammograms. It used to be 40. And recently, several medical bodies have changed that age to 50. That's a thing that happened. And that is something to discuss with your doctor. And we'll get more into that when we talk about the specific guidelines, but the basic tenant of research is that it is not a static thing. It is ongoing. It is continual. As technology and human behavior and countless other minutia circumstances change, so will research outcomes and therefore the guidelines that we base on those outcomes. Human behavior is the greatest variable and it presents the greatest challenge in research and in medicine. So for example, and I, I always remember this because I have been in healthcare in one capacity or another for 16 years now. I started out as a medical assistant in the clinic, then I became a nurse, and I've been a nurse for 11 years. I worked on oncology, ICU, I'm in the emergency department now, all of that, whatever. The, all of that to say, I have seen guidelines that I started with that I learned about in nursing school that are different now. We used to Ivy push Fenergan, you guys. And I know that that doesn't mean very much if you're not a nurse, but like now you know we dilute Fenergan in a hundred mil bag of normal saline and we run that thing over 15 minutes because bad things were happening. <laughs> um, 
Another thing that's fascinating about guidelines that is specific to our oncology population that changed is how we approach uh, care for neutropenic patients. So patients that basically have shit for an immune system, right? Because of usually the treatment that they're on. Just think about when you were on chemo. Shit for immunity, right? Um, so there were masking guidelines. Way, way, way before the pandemic, there were masking guidelines. And the guideline was that uh, anyone coming into contact with a neutropenic patient needed to wear a mask. And everyone thought that this was a good idea. And it was very much based on a scientific tenet of source containment. When you wear a surgical mask, you are containing a good amount, not all, but a good amount of whatever random viral or resident flora bacteria that exists in our human mouths, which are disgusting. <laughs> They're really nasty, you guys. If you've ever seen a wound from a human bite, which I've seen several, disgusting. Anyway, this masking, you know, all the literature said this will be helpful to neutropenic patients to protect them and keep them safe. Years and years and years later, years of research, because once we implement something in medicine and in science, you continue to research that thing. You continue to reevaluate, is this really the best? Because science and research and tech, you know, medical uh, circles don't concern themselves with being right and committing to something and then you know, ignoring all evidence to the latter. We're always looking to change, to adapt, mostly to human behavior. And what surprisingly was found was that for some reason, the source containment masking, where it's a one-person masking going into a neutropenic patient's room or household, was actually having no effect on preventing communicable disease from reaching the patient and also potentially was making things worse. And as the research continued, what discovered was it wasn't that the science was wrong. Source containment is still very much um, a solid scientific fact, but the issue was human behavior. So people who were masking had, in those times, you know, pre-pandemic, wearing a mask was, I mean, just think about the early days of COVID when you had to wear a mask walking around the grocery store. Where were most people's masks? Most, you know, like at least a good amount of people well below their nose. They had it, it was loose, n not fitted well. Anyway, poor mask literacy combined with this idea that some people had that even if they weren't feeling totally well, because the guidelines were, if you are sick, do not visit this neutropenic person. If you do visit, wear a mask. Well, some people felt, and again, this is just human behavior, that even though they didn't feel incredibly well, they were wearing a mask, and so it must be okay. So essentially, while I was still in oncology, this changed. They reversed the mask guidance, and they actually eliminated the requirement for masking in a neutropenic patient's room, and they focused instead on the health of the, of the visitor and the caretaker on the patient. Well, of course, now we're in a pandemic. And masking is, again, something that we're looking at. And maybe next pandemic we'll have more information, but essentially universal masking is uh, 
the gold standard now. Everyone wearing a mask. And then for those who are immunocompromised, an N95 because it filters out way more particles and, and much smaller particles as well. So things change, not always because the science changes, but because human behavior cannot always be accounted for. Because sometimes we don't know what crazy shit humans are going to do until they do it. Anyway, that's a very long-winded example of why sometimes guidelines change. And to really drive this point home and to bring it closer to kind of our own experiences or our many of us, if you've been ever diagnosed with breast cancer, is the contralateral prophylactic mastectomy, which is, of course, having a mastectomy on the unaffected side the unaffected breast. So if you're like me, you found a lump in one of your breasts and not the other. You had all the scans and, and it, it very much pinpointed that the cancer was in my right breast and my sentinel node and nowhere else. So doing a literature review was very eye-opening to me in that in the last 10 years, the evidence is clear that having a mastectomy on the unaffected side does in no way, there is no evidence to show that that is preventative, that it is life extending for the individual or that it decreases the chance of recurrence, either one. And yet, instances of having a prophylactic or like preventative mastectomy on the unaffected side, they continue to go up. And there's a lot of human reasons why that is and they're not wrong they're not wrong it's a choice you make and sometimes it's a choice you make because of the mental game that cancer is and if you can do something to help you cope with the stress and the trauma of just having cancer in the first place and then also this expectation almost that you'll get it again which is something we all live with, um, you're going to do it. It doesn't change the available evidence, but we're also free to make our own decisions. So again, it's human behavior is fascinating and it is why research and medicine is so complicated. <laughs> anyway, so what scans do you need? What are the guidelines? Let's talk about it. One of the best reference tools that I have found for people who are at an average risk, so this does not include any of us who have been diagnosed with cancer at any point or anyone, well, we'll go into high-risk categories, but average-risk people, there is a CDC chart. Uh, it's a table, and it compiles all the guidelines from all of the uh, major medical organizations whose job it is to compile the data and deliver these guidelines. This includes the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, the American Cancer Society, the American College of OB-GYNs, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the American College of Radiology, the American College of Physicians, and the American Academy of Family Physicians. So who are these people? Why are they reputable sources of information? I will tell you. 
The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is an independent volunteer panel, and this is from their website, of national experts in disease prevention and evidence-based medicine. The task force works to improve the health of people nationwide by making evidence-based recommendations about clinical preventative services. The International Agency for Research on Cancer. This is part of the World Health Organization. So it's the international agency. um, It's a specialized cancer agency at the World Health Organization. And the objective is to promote international collaboration in cancer research. Because, spoiler alert, cancer doesn't just happen in America, folks. And then the rest of them are all the American colleges and the American um, academies, which are all um, groups of physicians that are in uh, that particular specialty. So, you know, American College of Radiologists, American College of OB-GYNs, American College of Surgeons, like these are all kind of subspecialties of medicine. And they all have their own organizations and those organizations have boards and, and members and they all kind of pool their research and information together and come out with these guidelines. By the way, nurses have these organizations as well. We have the American Nurses Association, the ANA, which is just kind of the blanket all nurses. And then you have like more specific groups, the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, the Oncology Nurses Society. They also compile guidelines. We tend to focus on the physician-led groups or the public health groups, and that is mostly because it is physicians who would be ordering the tests that are included in these guidelines. Um, So that's why that is. Let's get into the actual guidelines. They vary slightly, as is represented on the table, but very broadly. The guidelines for women with average risk are done according to age. So women aged 40 to 49, you may or may not want to start getting a mammogram every one to two years. (laughs) And again, these guidelines recently changed. And some entities still encourage this, that, that you start at 40, and some entities do not. And the way that they will kind of word that is... I'll, I'll just give you the, let's see, I'll give you the, the the most detailed one and the one that a lot of people probably reference is the American Cancer Society. I have been critical of them in the past um, because they are very, they play both sides of the political aisle and that is so that they can get funding regardless of who's in office. I understand why they do that, but it is frustrating to me. However, you know, they know their cancer, so... Here are their guidelines just to give you a taste, and I'm reading this from the table. Uh, Women aged 40 to 44 years should have the choice to start breast cancer screening once a year with mammography if they wish to do so. The risks of screening as well as the potential benefits should be considered. Women aged 45 to 49 years should be screened with mammography annually. So they, they say... Meh, between 40 and 45, meh, but at 45 to 49, yeah, yeah, man, go for it. However, if you look at the International Agency for Research on Cancer, it states there's limited evidence that screening with mammography 
reduces breast cancer mortality in women 40 to 49 years of age. And that is essentially what these guidelines are based on. Is it preventing death? <laughs> like, are these screenings on a large, and it's on a large scale. Certainly to us individually, um, it would matter. But they're looking at whole populations, and that's what you have to remember. These are based on, on, on large numbers. It's very important when considering when you, if you are an average risk person, should start with your screening mammograms. Um, the consensus is pretty clear, though, for women uh, aged 50 to 75, which is a mammogram every year, maybe even every two years is fine. Uh, after 75, I guess they just throw up their hands and say, you know, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> Again, <laughs> I don't, uh, yeah, that's what that is. Um, let's move into guidelines for high risk, which is most of us. So what is, who is in the high risk category? And again, this is based on the um, American Cancer Society, but it's pretty consistent across all of these entities. Um, if you have a known BRCA1, BRCA2 gene mutation, if you have a first degree relative, so a mother, a father, a brother, sister, or child with BRCA1, BRCA2 gene mutation, um, that is high risk. If you uh, have a lifetime risk of breast cancer that is 20 to 25% or greater, um, according to the risk assessment tool. Uh, that's a tool that you can access on a number like breastcancer.org, the CDC. You can just Google um, CDC lifetime risk of breast cancer tool, and you'll, you'll get that. You can calculate that out. Um, if you have ever had radiation therapy to the chest for any kind of cancer, if you have a genetic disease such as Lee Fromini, Lee Fromini maybe is how it's called, Cowden syndrome or Benign Riley Ruv. So there are some syndromes, okay, if you've had them. <laughs> um, or if a first-degree relative has had them, if you've had abnormal breast cell changes like atypical ductal hyperplasia or atypical lobular hyperplasia, all the hyperplasias, you know. You know what I'm talking about. Um, or if you have extremely dense breasts or unevenly dense breasts when viewed by mammograms. I have dense breasts. I have been told this uh, many times um, however, I was never told prior to actually getting breast cancer that I was high risk, and that probably had a lot to do with my age being quite young. Um, and yeah, oh yeah, duh, if you've already had breast cancer, obviously. So if you are high risk, you are going to get a mammogram every year, and now, more recently, the guidelines are that you need a breast MRI every year. And these guidelines are pretty consistent, again, across all of these governing bodies. The gold standard is that you get a mammogram, six months later you get an MRI, six months later mammogram, six months later MRI, so that you're getting them kind of offset. Uh, and that is how I have scheduled mine out. 
Additionally, guys, <laughs> some of you may also have to get a DEXA scan. So a DEXA scan is a bone density scan. Not to be confused with a bone scan, which is a different thing looking for metastasis in your bones. This is a bone density scan. Um, and according to UpToDate, which by the way, UpToDate is something that as uh, that many clinicians and as a nurse I use frequently. It is, um, I mean, it's an app on my phone, honestly, but it is... It compiles all of the latest research and treatment modalities and information and guidelines and recommendations and in treatment of everything. All the latest, it gets compiled into UpToDate. That's its whole thing is it has the latest. And it's been around for a very long time and hospitals um, use it and allow us as clinicians uh, license rights to use it while we are employed there. So there are like certain things that as a healthcare worker, I have access to that the general public does not and up to date is one of them. There, there are publicly available um, pages and information through up to date to everyone. And this is one of them that I did find um, on estrogen deficiency and bone loss. Did you know <laughs> that not having uh, access to estrogen makes your bones brittle? Because <laughs> I don't know if I knew that. Uh, I don't know if I put, I'm sure I learned it in nursing school at some point, but I don't think I put two and two together. But um, basically those of us uh, who are on an aromatase inhibitor, such as anastrozole or uh, letrozole or exemestane. Uh, there must be another name for that because I'm not familiar with that one. But um, basically, uh, estrogen in your body inhibits bone reabsorption, so it 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 prevents your body from kind of like whittling away at your bone density. <laughs> Um, when you go into menopause, whether that is naturally or as a result of being on these medications after having an ER positive uh, breast cancer, estrogen deficiency will increase bone reabsorption and rapid bone loss. So our bones get brittle <laughs> and we have to get them scanned to see how brittle they are. And then I guess maybe there are things you can do about that, uh, but I guess I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I have my DEXA scan next week. Um, and I think it will be relatively easy and painless, the scan itself, because uh, I did look up what that was going to involve because my MRI very much involved uh, getting an IV because I had to have contrast. And I do not enjoy needles, even though they are my monthly friend now. Um, and it wasn't really that bad, actually. But I only really had like this one really good AC vein uh, or antecubital vein, which is like the where your, where your elbow bends, like the anterior part of it. I have this, this one vein and it 
is always used and it is quite scarred up. But anyway, according to breastcancer.org and my own understanding of what a DEXA scan is, it's quick and painless. Um, you just lay down on a well, breastcancer.org says it will be a cushioned table, so that's quite a claim to make. I don't know about that, but... <laughs> and, you know, the scanner goes over you, and, and then you get your results. And your results um, are basically in the form of two scores. You get a T-score, and that's the difference between your bone density and the average bone density of a young, healthy woman, <laughs> which they don't further um, define, but uh, essentially a score between negative 1 and negative 2.5 is um, osteopenia, which is a precursor to osteoporosis, which is, whoa, your bones are thin, but a score above negative 1 is normal. Um, and then below 2.5 is, uh, again, osteoporosis, which is, ugh, you know. And of course, we worry about that because you can break a bone. And then there's the Z-score, and that's amount of bone you have compared to other women of your age and race. So this is like comparing you to someone who is kind of comparable, not the, air quotes, healthy young woman, uh, which again, the fuck is that? Um, if your Z-score is very high or very low, you you might need like further tests, essentially. So, and uh, then they basically say your doctor will help you interpret these results, which is their way of saying, you know, just talk to your doctor about it because there's nuance and and stuff like that. So, CT scans, PET scans, bone scans that are not a DEXA scan. These things aren't traditionally used as screening. They are used for diagnostic purposes, which means they are used when something concerning is seen on a mammogram or an MRI and further testing is needed. So essentially signs of metastatic disease, <laughs> which uh, you gotta know is always in the back of our minds. You and me both. <laughs> Yay! On this episode of Breast Cancer is Boring, we are introducing a new segment called Yeah, That's Normal. Our first topic will be crying after your screening mammogram following your diagnosis of breast cancer. <laughs> Did you cry hysterically your first mammogram after completing treatment for breast cancer? Yeah, that's normal. Um, I did it for sure. You do it. We all do it. We all do it. Um, whether you cry immediately afterwards and have to wear your sunglasses through the waiting room to disguise the fact that you completely lost your shit while changing out of your gown back into your clothes, or whether you do it later uh, because you discovered the very specific outfit you wanted to wear that day is dirty and you had no backup plan, and now you're, you know, going to be even later than you already were. Whenever it happens, it's it's going to happen. You've been triggered, and. The reason that it's going to happen is because we have experienced a trauma and your brain remembers that trauma on a chemical and structural level. The body keeps the score. It remembers these things. And even though our logical brain says this is no big deal, chemically, our body is telling us a very different story. So I don't know why. 
My body has to throw a neurotransmissile fit every time I revisit <laughs> places or pivotal moments in my cancer experience, but it is a normal part of this process. So the next time you find yourself losing your shit after leaving the cancer center, or standing in front of a bunch of cereal at your local Kroger's, all Hurt Locker style, which is a very old reference. <laughs> Just remember, yeah, that's normal. You're normal. And now, back to the show. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of these scans uh, is scanxiety. <laughs> We have to get these scans. We have to get them every six months now. And every time, every time, let alone the random pains, the random bumps or lumps that we can't account for, setting all of that anxiety aside, we are guaranteed at least twice a year to completely chemically, neurotransmissally lose our shit over whether or not they're going to find something, you know? I have different ways of coping with scanxiety um, that I have developed and are, you know, I'm still developing, but here's kind of where my coping mechanisms are at. And uh, I will introduce them um, going from low levels of panic uh, to high levels of panic. <laughs> and I just want to drive home the fact that these are not recommendations. I am not acknowledging that these are healthy coping mechanisms. I am just acknowledging very truthfully that this is what I tend to do. Um, yeah, not guidelines, just honesty. So low levels of scanxiety. This is usually like weeks out. We're weeks out from the scan and I'm only lightly intermittently thinking about it maybe because I have to schedule my work around it or uh, you know it's just on my calendar or, or what have you. Um, so some low uh, level of panic coping mechanisms that I have implemented with varying success is um, putting on my workout clothes and either cleaning or um, practicing handstands, which is something I've started doing, or actually do a workout. Um, this serves kind of two purposes. Just putting on the workout clothes, because of the way workout clothing technology has advanced in the last 10 years, <laughs> it makes my body look so good. And that gives me a little boost. Um, that is what that is. Again, I'm not making any judgments. I'm just telling it like it is. Um, it, it makes me feel good. And that, like, and just putting on workout clothes makes me feel like I may eventually work out because I'm already like halfway there. Um, and then just working out feels good. Not at the time, certainly, but afterwards, I feel a sense of accomplishment. I don't have to feel guilty for not working out, which is a thing I wish I could get rid of entirely in my life. And also, um, I do get like this burst of energy, probably since it's one of the only sources of endorphins I have left in my life. But sometimes I just end up cleaning or reorganizing uh, 
an area. And that also feels good. Another thing I'll do when my panic levels are relatively uh, low and manageable is I will schedule a meetup with a friend. I kind of, I know I'm having like this feeling because I feel a little unsettled. Like I need to do something. I need to do something. And I, I still have energy to do it. At this stage, the energy is high enough that I can schedule like a happy hour or put together like a Zoom call with some of my friends who are remote or just something to remind myself, I think, that I have people. I have people who are going to be there for me in hard times and... uh yeah, just connecting with them makes me feel less alone. Moving into the uh, mid-range panic and anxiety that I feel, um, this is when I start to kind of really go, for better or worse, inside of myself. Um, but I choose very active forms of coping. This, but but not, my energy is not as high. Uh, and that is things like, doing my nails. I have done my nails weekly for years. And recently, uh, in the last year, I went back to bedside nursing and realized that regular polish is just not going to cut it. So I have for months now, um, been doing, uh, gel nails. I got like a gel nail kit with a light and everything. And it sounds like a lot, but it's, it's really very manageable and is a very, soothing thing for me. It's something I have to concentrate on, but it doesn't take a lot of physical energy, which is very important. Um, and I've been like experimenting with doing designs and I, I do the whole thing. I have like cuticle, uh, remover that I use. I shape my nails, paint my nails, like the whole thing. It's very involved and takes at least, it takes like an hour if I'm just doing a straight polish. It can take up to two hours if I'm like doing designs and stuff. So it's good. It's a good way to like spend that time. Um, and you all know I don't have kids, right? I, I just, I, I can, I can put, because Lauren's not here to represent the women who are um, lacking in personal time. <laughs> So I, I do have to remember that I do have a lot of personal time and that is very much my choice and by design. Um, that is something that I traded um, ever being a parent uh, for having my own personal time. So, and those are choices we make. And here we are. Um, I like to read fantasy fiction in my comfy chair. I have a egg, like one of those egg chairs, like those wicker I think it's supposed to be an outdoor egg chair, but because I have very high ceilings in this loft apartment, it fits in my well-being room, what I'm calling. Um, I've got a nice shag rug in there, and I have this huge-ass egg chair. <laughs> it's like a cage with like an opening for me to climb in almost, um, and it's got a ton of pillows and a blanket, and it's just highly enjoyable and comfortable to be in there. The lighting is low and I'll just sit in there uh, with a drink and read my fantasy novels and just lose myself in someone else's struggles uh, for a while. And that is very helpful. This is also the point where I do some shopping, much of it fantasy shopping, you know, like loading up a cart that I would never press checkout on. Um, I may look for clothes, try to solve some problems you know I 
in my work wardrobe. I wear a sports bra. It's like one of the only times I actually wear a bra, but I do wear a sports bra to work. I feel a little more um, supported in that way. Not that I needed support, but like I definitely need like a nipple guard uh, at the very least. And it just feels like more utility. You know what I mean? Um, and I had like three of them, but I always only wear the one. So recently when I was feeling anxious about this MRI, I just went and bought two more of the exact sports bra that I always end up wearing anyway. And I was just like, let's cut the bullshit and let's get rid of these two sports bras that I do not favor and just like wear the one I want. You know what I mean? Like oddly, when you are stressed out about one thing, you you, ha you, you like develop an intolerance for some other things that, that kind of stress you out in a, in a, to a much lesser capacity. And so I find that it's actually quite helpful. So I did that. Uh, the other thing is shopping for areas in my apartment. I am decorating like I never have before. And that is because uh, we've always rented. Uh, we haven't owned a home in, I think, 12 years. Um, and that was not a great experience for us because we were um, we didn't really have home money. <laughs> when we owned a home, we couldn't really do anything with it because uh, circumstances being what they were. So I have been decorating and getting like rugs and curtains and like the peel and stick wallpaper and just like making our apartment a home and a place we want to be and like having things that are colorful and soft and like really nesting I guess for myself I think the pandemic also uh brought that out in me but that is something I often do when my panic levels are um mid-range um lastly when my anxiety kicks into high gear there's really nothing that works quite like chemicals <laughs> So um, these can look like booze. My booze of choice is uh, champagne. Sometimes I cut it with uh, this kombucha I really like, you know, just like a splash of it. Or if I have a fruit juice or um, the carrot ginger juice that I have uh, talked myself into believing has medicinal qualities in my body. <laughs> but straight up is also just lovely and luxurious and I like it. Um, I have these calm gummies that I bought. There's like lots of different um, brands that deal calm gummies and I'm not talking about like the gummies, <laughs> although I bet those would help too. I just, I'm not allowed to, uh, even the weed is legal where I live. I'm not allowed to do it because I'm a healthcare professional and they have a long way to go um, in that regard. But uh Hum makes this like stay calm gummy and it's got this like I don't know the name of it, but it's got a it's got a chemical in it that's supposed to calm your ass down. And whether it really does or it's like a placebo effect, I don't really care because it kind of works. Um, and then lastly, occasionally I have been known to request the odd Xanax. Um, haven't had to do that since my last surgery, but if you're just freaking out and you're losing sleep and you um, are constantly thinking about the scan, it may be time to call your doctor and ask for some prescription strength chemicals. Um, I also quite enjoy uh, being on my couch under a blanket and watching a show that I have fully seen before and I know how it ends. There are no surprises. I know the characters. I know who to root for. I know who to root against. I, I really have quite low levels of distress tolerance when I am this 
freaked out and uh, anxious, and I it needs to be very passive. Even reading is too active for me at this stage. It needs to be very passive. I need, um, I need television to completely absorb me, and I need to be comfortable and very relaxed and passive. And then also cake. I'm just going to be honest. There it used to be ice cream for me uh, was like the most comforting of foods, and now it is cake. And maybe it always was cake, and I just didn't know it all along. Yeah, but those are the things I use to cope with scanxiety. What do you use to cope with scanxiety? Let us know on uh, the Instagram page or let us know in a review on Apple Podcasts. Speaking of, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It would be a cool thing for you to do, and we would very much like it. Tell your friends and family and strangers on the street to listen to the podcast. Um, I get very excited when new people join the community. Um, if there are things you want to talk about that we're just not talking about, let us know. If you want Lauren to return like I do, let us know. Uh, she will be back next episode because she is one of my greatest friends and most favoritest people as she is for you, I am sure. Thank you for listening. Freaking out about scans is normal and you're not alone. And we'll be back with a new episode later. And it's storming outside, so I'm going to go watch the rain. Have a great day. Bye.